Hello again, this is Robert Whittaker with the Cambridge podcast team. On this podcast we're going to look at the nose and the nasopharynx. And we'll start with the nasal cavity. Now the nasal cavity extends from the nares or the nostrils back as far as the coena, which is the posterior aspect of the septum. As the septum divides the nasal cavity into two separate compartments, there will therefore be a hole at either side of the septum posteriorly. These are called the coena, C-H-O-A-N-A. The floor of the nasal cavity would be the hard palate. The roof are the lower aspects of the sphenoid and the ethmoid bones. And the medial wall would be the septum. The lateral wall of the nose is the medial side of the orbit, the ethmoidal air cells and the maxillary sinuses. There are three types of mucosa that we encounter in the nasal cavity. First of all, high up, there is the olfactory mucosa associated with the olfactory nerve. Then, near the opening of the nares, there is vestibular skin, which is squamous skin and hair. And then the rest of the mucosa in the nose is respiratory, which is pseudostratified ciliated columnar epithelium. On the lateral wall of the nasal cavity, there are the conchi, or turbinates as they're often called clinically. There are three on each side, a superior, a middle and an inferior. The superior and middle are part of the ethmoid bone, whereas the inferior concha is a separate bone attached to the medial side of the maxilla. Beneath each of these outcrops of bone there is a cavity which is known as a meatus and it's into these meati that the various sinuses drain. So now let's look at the lateral wall of the left nasal cavity. Right up in the superior aspect of this cavity there is the sphenoethmoidal recess into which opens the opening of the sphenoid sinus. Then, in the superior meatus, under the superior concha, there is the opening of the posterior ethmoidal air cells. If we then look down at the middle meatus, beneath the middle concha, we'll find the opening of the maxillary sinus, and then the middle ethmoidal sinus, which is actually standing out on a small swelling called a bulla ethmoidalis. Then more anteriorly there is a passage leading up to the frontal sinus which is called the infundibulum. As this infundibulum from the frontal sinus comes down to open into the anterior part of this middle meatus, the anterior ethmoidal sinus drains into it, but it may sometimes drain separately. The little curved area into which the infundibulum drains anteriorly is called the hiatus semilunaris. And then lastly of these meati we can look under the inferior concha and here we'll find the opening of the nasolacrimal duct. So this seems a bit complicated so why don't we simplify it by saying that all the sinuses drain into the middle meatus apart from the posterior ethmoidal which drains into the superior meatus and the sphenoid, which drains above the conchi into the sphenoethmoidal recess. And then we simply just need to remember that the nasolacrimal duct drains into the inferior meatus. 
Whilst we're talking about the lateral wall of the nose, let's just look at its blood supply. And this again can be simplified by saying that there are two arteries which originate from the external carotid and one artery that originates from the internal carotid. If we simplify it down in this way, we can see that there is a terminal branch of the maxillary artery passing through the pterygopalatine fossa in through the sphenopalatine foramen as the sphenopalatine artery and this will give branches to the posterior part of the lateral wall. Then anteriorly there will be branches of the facial artery that enter the nose anteriorly. And then finally superiorly there will be branches of the ophthalmic artery from the orbit in the form of the anterior and posterior ethmoidal arteries. No doubt ENT surgeons might need to know many more branches of these arteries but I think that's as simple as we can make it. It's worth noting that the venous drainage is down into the pharyngeal plexus, the pterygoid plexus and other branches join the facial vein. Now let's look at the nasal septum. We can see that coming down from above is the perpendicular plate of the ethmoid. This articulates with the upper margin of the vomer and then anteriorly between these two bones there is the septal cartilage. Fortunately for us, the arterial supply of the septum is extremely similar to the lateral wall. In other words, the branches of the sphenopalatine artery from the maxillary, there's the anterior ethmoidal artery from the ophthalmic, and there's some septal branches from the facial artery. It's worth noting, however, that there is a small area low down anteriorly on the septum called Little's area. And this is a particularly vascular area and therefore liable to nosebleeds. It has contributions from all three of the arteries that we've mentioned. Once again, we can remind ourselves that the lining of the medial and lateral walls are respiratory epithelium, in other words, pseudostratified ciliated columna. It's extremely vascular and, of course, there are mucous cells as well. Many people find the nerve supply of the nose rather complicated, but once again I'd like to simplify it as much as possible. In the illustration that we've provided you with this podcast, you get a very strange view looking up a single nostril. In fact, we're looking up the right nostril, so on the right side we'll see the septum, and on the left side we'll see the lateral wall. Immediately one can see that high up, in the apex of the nasal cavity, there are branches of the olfactory nerve. Slightly further forward, there are anterior ethmoidal nerves coming down from the nasociliary in the orbit. There are then several branches from the pterygopalatine ganglion, which include the nasopalatine nerve, which comes through the sphenopalatine foramen and eventually passes down through the incisive canal in the anterior part of the hard palate. And then finally, there's some small internal branches of the infraorbital nerve, which again came from the maxillary division of the trigeminal. Now, at this stage, I think the most useful thing one can do is look at the ethmoid bone and the ethmoidal sinuses. Using a little imagination, it's possible to see the ethmoid bone as looking rather like a catamaran. It has two hulls, a left and a right one, which contain air cells. 
It has a crib reform plate that joins the two hulls. It has the Krista galley, which looks very like a sail. And then suspended from underneath it is the perpendicular plate, which is part of the nasal septum. Beneath the cribriform plate, in the lateral wall of the nose, we can see the superior and middle conchi. When you look into the inside of a skull in the anterior cranial fossa, you can only see the cribriform plate. And this is because the frontal bone, the wide plates of which cover the top of the ethmoid bone. Therefore, the decking of the two lateral hulls of our catamaran are covered by the orbital plate of the frontal bone. Our diagram shows how the anterior, middle and posterior air cells drain into their respective areas on the lateral wall. If we turn for a minute to look at the frontal sinuses we can see that they appear at the age of two years and are not even present at birth. They're nearly always unequal in size and there is a bony septum between them. They're supplied by branches of the supraorbital and supratrochlear nerves which come from the frontal nerve in the orbit. We've already discussed their drainage through the, its infundibulum down into the middle meatus. The sphenoidal air sinuses lie within the body of the sphenoid, again usually fairly asymmetrical with a septum between the two, and these drain, as we've indicated, into the sphenoethmoidal recess. An important relationship lateral to each of them is the cavernous sinus on each side. Finally, we have the largest of all the sinuses, the maxillary sinuses. These are pyramidal in shape. The anterior and the posterior walls are the maxilla. And we've seen that the opening drains into the hiatus semilunaris of the middle meatus. It's important to note that the ostium is about 3 or 4 millimetres and it's very high up on the posterior end of the nasal wall. There is often a small lateral extension into the zygomatic process of the maxilla and it's worth noting that the inferior part of the sinus can extend below the floor of the nose. This means that during posterior teeth extraction there can be fistulae through between the mouth and these sinuses. Of course, nobody really knows why we do have paranasal sinuses, but certainly there's no doubt that they lighten the skull and they warm and humidify the air. The mucus production helps to trap bacteria and other foreign bodies, and also the sinuses give resonation to the voice. Now let's turn to the nasopharynx. The nasopharynx begins where the nasal cavity finishes, and that, of course, we saw was the coeni. So the anterior superior limit is the coeni, and the lower border is the lower border of the soft palate. The sides and the posterior wall of the nasopharynx is the pharyngo-basilar fascia. Once again, the nasopharynx is lined by the ciliated columnar epithelium that we've discussed previously. The features of the nasopharynx include the opening of the auditory tube, the pharyngeal tonsil, the tubal tonsil, and the pharyngeal recess of Rosenmuller. In addition, we can see bulges which represent both the salpingopharyngeus and the levator palati muscles. As the auditory or eustachian tube emerges from the middle ear, it becomes cartilaginous, and this cartilage pierces pharyngobasilar fascia, 
at a slightly oblique angle so that the tube itself sticks into the nasopharynx slightly more posteriorly than it does anteriorly. This results in a posterior ridge called the torus and it's on this that the mucosa covers salpingopharyngeus and on the mucosa is the tubal tonsil. From the lower anterior border of the eustachian tube we see levator palati passing down to the soft palate. From this view we do not see the tensor palati as it is somewhat more lateral. High up posteriorly in the midline is the pharyngeal tonsil or adenoid. This tonsil together with the tubal tonsils on either side and the palatine tonsils in the mouth and the lingual tonsil on the posterior third of the tongue provides a circle of lymphatic tissue called Waldar's ring. Now the nerve supply of the nasopharynx is from the pharyngeal branch of the maxillary division of the trigeminal. It passes downwards from the pterygopalatine fossa and there is, as always, when there is mucous cells, secretomotor fibres which are parasympathetic. From a functional point of view, it's important to note that the nasopharynx is shut off during swallowing. This is achieved by the soft palate first being stretched laterally by tensor palati and then lifted up by levator palati. This effectively closes off the nose from the mouth and avoids any regurgitation of food during swallowing. It's perhaps worth noting that the pharyngeal recess of Rosenmuller is the area behind salpingopharyngeus and it's important to note that just deep to this area lies the internal carotid artery. Finally, before leaving the nasopharynx, we just need to look briefly at the attachments of the pharyngobasilar fascia. This fascia is the upper part of the pharyngeal wall. It's overlapped by the superior constrictor, part of the middle constrictor, and then lower below it are the inferior constrictor muscles. If you look at the base of the skull in one of the drawings that we suggested you have alongside this podcast, you can see the actual attachments. And I think it's worth noting that the levator palati arises within this fascia and attaches to the soft palate, whereas all the other muscles that we've mentioned are lying outside it. So that's all for this podcast. Thank you for listening. Please visit our website at incidentanatomy.net where you can find the complete collection of all our podcasts. You can also subscribe, download or order any of our material. You will also find full details of our range of mobile apps.